Hi, and welcome to the Mental Health Crossroads podcast, where we explore the intersection of mental health and developmental disabilities. A few housekeeping items before we jump into this interview with David Jones from ACL. First, this interview was recorded in June of 2021, so some of the information about grants may be dated. Second, we're approaching the end of our second season of the Mental Health Crossroads podcast. Please watch this space for our new center podcast, the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal podcast. You can visit the link in the show notes for more. We hope to be highlighting research and other work from the AUCD network published in our journal, the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal. That's all the news we have for now. Please enjoy this interview. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today for Mental Health Crossroads. We're Excited today to welcome David Jones, who is the new director of the Office of Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities and the acting director of the Office of Disability Services Innovation at the Administration for Community Living in the US Department of Health and Human Services. Um, David, prior to coming to ACL in July of 2020, he served in two federal agencies focused on disability employment and programs. At the U.S. Department of Labor, Labor, he oversaw the administration of disability employment initiative grants and technical assistance contracts to help strengthen the capacity of American job centers to serve people with disabilities. And he served at the U.S. Department of Education, where he monitored state VR programs uh, and was a program officer for two protection and advocacy programs. Uh, prior to his career focus on disability, uh, David served within the Inspector General community for three federal agencies and the United Way of America. He's originally from Pennsylvania, holds a bachelor's degree from Bucknell University and a master's of public administration from George Mason. And we are really, really excited to have David with us today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Matthew, and really nice to be on today's podcast. Yeah, you bring a really diverse background. Uh, and, you know, although you've been in the disability field for quite a while, you're relatively new to ACL and many of our listeners uh, work in ACL funded programs. So, you know, outside of what I've shared, uh, can you share a little bit more about your background and sort of what you bring to your position at ACL? Sure, uh, Matt. And I actually joined ACL last July. And so I'll be um, coming to my one year anniversary. And then, as you mentioned, I am the director of the Office of Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities, and I'm very fortunate in that role to be collaborating with the DD Council and the USED. Um, we're also ramping up the President's Commission of People with Intellectual Disabilities. Um, and, you know, we're currently in a transition right now, and I'm also serving in the um, Office of Disability Services Innovation, um, where we work with the PNA agencies and the Project of National Significance. And I feel I'm very fortunate to be in both roles right now because I feel um, we can really learn um, from each other. But on a personal note, I, I am an individual with a disability and I very much beat the odds through hard work, determination and resilience. Um, I was born with a severe hearing loss and I do feel very much my disability has shaped me in um, pushing through barriers to achieve my goals. Um, but one of the things that I do know is that I you know, did not do this alone. I, I was very fortunate to have um, strong family support and a wonderful community um, growing up um, in a coal mining town in um, Pennsylvania where um, the church, my teachers um, in the community were um, very instrumental in shaping me. So I've been very fortunate. Um, I went to Bucknell University. After that, I um, came to DC 
and I'm currently in my 20th year of government service, and I do feel very fortunate to be in this role um, to give back. Um, I am one of those fortunate few people who had the job, you know, having a disability, and um, anything I can do to, um, you know, strengthen disability employment, um, it's, you know, one of my um, passions. So, um, so I feel like I have a job with a purpose and a life with purpose. So I'm very fortunate um, to be doing what I do each day. You have just a remarkable background and it is nice, um, you know, with that diversity that you bring and a different perspective from multiple different federal agencies. Uh, in addition to your lived experience, I'm sure uh, will be informing your priorities. So in your role at ACL, um, as the director of OIDD, um, what priorities do you have? What priorities are you trying to focus on? Well, oftentimes I tell people, I don't really establish the priority. Um, I do serve the administration and, um, and oftentimes, um, you know, they will set the priority. But what I often do is to support leadership is I'll, you know, say, tell me your vision and I'll help you get there. And I'll get you there from point A to point B. And I basically give a lot of the leaders um, options for um, the path to take. And so the priorities right now that we're really focusing on is combating COVID-19. And earlier this year, we've done a remarkable job with getting um, you know, grant dollars out to the USED, DD Council, the IL community, and the PNAs to um, you know, increase vaccine assets in the community. Um, I think we received nearly $93 million between the disability and the aging network. And so that's just one of the um, things that we're doing right now in ACL is making sure that the funds are getting out there and that people can get vaccine um, assets. So um, that's one thing that we're doing. Um, another priority is racial equity, and that's huge. Um, you know, if we look at criminal justice reform, um, ending disparity in healthcare assets and education, improved housing assets, it's very important in what we do um, with our um, grants. And another priority area that I feel also very passionate about is um, building back better. This is a priority of um, President Biden. Um, he did recently sign the American Rescue Plan to support economic recovery. And I know that there's a lot of funding for the home and community-based services. And so we're very excited about that. But we're in a very unique moment in time in which we can build the economy back from the pandemic. And you know the people with disability do play a very important role as part of that um, recovery effort. And so within ACL right now, um, really um, we're looking at the um, AOD Disability Employment TA Center to support our grantees to make sure that there's shared knowledge around that. We also have um, you know, provided a business pie challenge to support employers to be more inclusive to people with disabilities. So there's some of the priorities we have, but I think the unique thing that I do bring to the role is um, on the how. And so I, I very much um, am focused on increasing visibility. I'm one of those persons with the megaphone to really you know, get our word out there in terms of what we do. And also it's so important that not only externally um, communicating what we do, but internally increasing engagement. And it's so important with our grantees that we build trust. And you know, last year um, when I came on board, one of the first things I did was had um, monthly calls with the um, DD councils in smaller forums. Um, across the regions. And we're starting something um, like that this summer. And I'm really looking forward to getting to know more of the USEDs. And um, we also did something innovative um, just about two weeks ago where we brought the whole DD network together with the DD councils and the USEDs and the PNAs. 
um, to really kind of think together um, as it relates to um, how ABLE accounts can be um, helpful to um, individuals with IDD. And basically ABLE is um, a tax advantage savings plan to pay for disability qualified expenses. So, um, so yeah, increasing visibility and increasing engagement is something that I really do to support our leadership in carrying out um, the administration's priorities. That's great. So, uh, you know, outside of the priorities, right, that are set by the administration and that are kind of underway, there's other things facing community living programs. You know, the, the settings role implementation is just on the horizon and there's a bunch of other um, things that are kind of waiting in the wings. What do you, from your perspective and from your big picture view, what are some of the most pressing issues facing community living programs in the US today? Well, I do think first and foremost, it is equity. And, um, and I know within the criminal justice system, um, there's been a lot of lessons learned from what we saw last year with um, George Floyd. And one of the things I'm very happy to see is, um, you know, some changes happening in DC, for instance, where, you know, first responders to um, a crisis, you know, they're right now pivoting from just sending um, the police force and instead sending, um, you know, um, mental health officials um, to um, provide um, support. And so, it, and, that, and that is something that I think is very important because we need to make sure that um, the experts are responding to these um, very delicate, um, critical um, situations. And so what we're finding is it's not only um, pivoting in DC, but also the state of Virginia is taking similar steps to mandate behavioral health crisis teams statewide. And so I'm really pleased to see that there's a lot of training and leadership happening. And so I feel like that is one way that we can really, um, you know, bridge the gap in equity as it relates to um, our criminal justice system with our um, first responders. So um, I feel that's a very um, pressing issue facing community living. Um, another area of equity is going to be more from the labor lens. Um, you know, I do believe that, you know, the statistics show that, um, you know, for a lot of youth that get incarcerated, they do have a disability. And there is a higher ratio of percentage of those, you know, within the African American population. And so, you know, there is value to the reentry program from the incarceration of youth back into the community and into the workforce system. And I think that's the program that's often overlooked because this is a group that often gets marginalized and not able to get really a fair shot um, in life by being an ex-offender. And if you can get to them early in their youth um, through mentoring, I think it's something that would be a great investment. And so I do believe that there's value of partnership in having more effective reentry program to support communities um, as they look at, you know, workforce education, training, and um, job placement. So I feel there's a lot of, um, you know, um, you know, correlation between individuals with disability, youth incarceration, and helping them get them back on their feet. So I think that's one area um, that is of critical importance right now that we need to look at a little more closely. And finally, the third area, which everyone is talking about is the labor shortage for um, the direct support professionals. And as we know, they are the wonderful group of people who help the IDD population live independently in the community. But unfortunately, there's a turnover rate of about 45%, and the challenge has only worsened you know, during the pandemic. And it's largely due to low wages, lack of benefits, and lack of training. Um, and so I do believe that there's really unique opportunity in which we can kind of invest in this 
and ACL has already begun that. Um, earlier this year, um, ACL launched the Disability Service Provider um, Drive Challenge, and um, basically what that is is looking for innovative solutions to address the um, crisis. And I do believe in this area, it is the priority of the Biden administration. And so I do think that we'll be getting more and more um, support in this area. So, um, so they're the three leading areas um, that I feel are kind of critical as we think about um, priorities within you know, community living. Yeah, all of which are huge needs. I just think you know, two of my calls earlier today were about the direct support professional shortage and training issues out here in Utah. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm glad to know that that's a priority that's also being looked at from the big picture because it is a huge challenge, especially post COVID here. It's just become so difficult to find people. <laughs> and to retain people, honestly. Um, but so one of the things that you brought up earlier in your comments uh, as you were talking about racial equity was mental health. And of course, this podcast is part of the Mental Health and Developmental Disabilities National Training Center, which is an ACL-funded initiative. Um, you know, it, mental health hasn't always been seen as part of a community living program. So, you know, a few years ago with the emergence of this National Training Center, we saw that ACL is starting to shift their focus uh, to start thinking about mental health. What are some other things that ACL is doing um, uh, in, in this administration to prioritize mental health, particularly for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities? That's a great question. I feel like right now in ACL, we are um, you know, continuing the course that we've been on, um, but I am very pleased to say that we're um, continuing to invest. Um, right now, we do have a notice of funding opportunity out there on the street for the users to apply with our national training initiative. And basically, it's focused on supporting people with IDD with co-occurring mental or behavioral health disabilities. Um, but you know, while I can't talk about that, the one thing I do want to um, kind of note, and I guess this is my public administrator hat, is um, within this area, I think you know, one of the things that we always are thinking about is what is the root of the problem? And you know, we often know that so many people with IDD in mental health often go undiagnosed or misdiagnosed because of the lack of tools um, for you know, mental health professionals. And you know, one of the things that I do know is that it, the, the numbers are pretty um, staggering, that there are about maybe oh, 7 million people in the US that have IDD. And of that group, a lot of them have mental health conditions. So we do see how the two are um, interconnected. But you know, one of the things that I you know, have been reading, and I've been doing a lot of reading about this, um, you know, last December and coordinating with um, SAMHSA, is you know, one of the leading challenges is that there are varying levels of collaboration at the state level between agencies overseeing IDD support and mental health treatment. And so basically what we're seeing is a lot of stovepipes, um, you know, the DD agency, mental health agency, and the structure of the system um, you know, is very unique to um, each state where there could be um, lack of coordination. And I have to admit, when I did read that, you know, the thing I just had a flashback to when I served at labor and education as it relates to the workforce. And you know, before it went from WIA, the Workforce Investment Act, to the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, the very same challenges that I've been reading have been um, described. You know, basically there was a lot of fragmentation. And so basically what WIOA tried to do was they tried to align the program and they try to be creative by, you know, the way that we do planning, you know, how do we align with planning? How do we, um, 
you know, get data, you know, together and how do we, you know, coordinate with um, services. So I feel like, you know, that there had been that shift with Rioa to focus on the customer and not on the system. And I feel like um, there, there are some of the challenges that I'm currently seeing in this um, sector that we're in um, right now. But at the same time, I am seeing very um, shining stars right now um, in this field of IDD, mental health. Um, and a good example would be um, in New Hampshire, the Institute on Disability. I'm seeing how they're doing the biopsychosocial approach. And I like it because they're looking at the biology of the person, the psychology of the person, and the social aspects of the person. They're looking at that individual as a person. So it's not about the system, it's about the individual. And they're taking a team's approach to focus on that individual. And so I, I really think that's really um, neat work. And I've been watching that and, um, and you know, I'm acknowledging their work. But also I'm seeing yeah. how states are doing some very innovative work I know in um, Delaware, they've established the ASSIST program, mm -hmm. the Assertive Community Integration and Support Team. And what I like about what they're doing is similar to what we talked about with WIOA, how do you make it more seamless for the customer? So they're making it more of a seamless handoff between mental health agency and the IDD agency. And that's really neat to see that they're focusing on the customer. And of course, in New Mexico, I'm hearing um, good things about the um, training for the direct support professional specifically as to not the what of what they need to do, but the how. So how do they recognize what they do? And, um, and, and it's not just focusing on the behavior, but kind of communicating what that means. And I feel like there's been some innovative training that's been happening um, in that area. So um, yeah, so I feel like we're kind of um, improving in terms of recognizing the importance of person-centered planning and um, the individual. And I feel like if we're on that track, I feel like we'll um, you know, make um, good strides. Yeah, those are some model states that you bring up who are really doing good work. It, it is exciting, the new, the new grant competition that's out there, although we can't talk a lot about it, but just the focus on building that local capacity when you talk about that systems fragmentation and just how they're, they, things aren't always working together. That new grant really, I think, highlights um, and provides resources for states to pull those stakeholders together and really address that fragmentation in a way that will hopefully address the needs, right, of individuals with dual diagnosis in our service system. And the one thing I wanna add, Matt, that we've been doing um, lately, and this is um, a testament to Jennifer Johnson's leadership and in coordination with Ruby Moore from University of Georgia, um, you know, they lead the um, International Initiative for Mental Health Leadership. And basically, you know, in this age of COVID-19, um, you know, we're not in this alone. Like COVID-19 does not know any borders. And so one of the things that we've been doing at ACL is actually engaging with, you know, other countries um, focused on, you know, the IDD mental health population as it relates to um, the COVID. And it's really been informative to have um, exchanges in that area um, because, you um, we're a world of one. Yeah. Yeah. So as you as you bring that up, this isn't one of the questions that I sent you, but it's something I'm. If you don't know, just say I don't know. <laughs> but in that international work and in the and looking at how other countries have been addressing this issue, are there any promising practices or things that have sort of caught your eye? Yeah, I would say the role of technology had something that um, been um, surfacing. 
And, um, you know, I think for so many in the world, we were in a fixed mindset. And, um, and I think we all had to learn to adapt and change um, and be in a growth mindset with um, technology. And, you know, we've seen it, especially in this country um, with um, telehealth in terms of how that has actually, um, you know, fostered innovation um, in ways not seen before. Granted, there are challenges in rural communities um, with using that. But, um, but I've seen some um, in the more developed countries how um, you know, tele, you know, technology had been very instrumental. And it should be very interesting to see as we kind of pivot from telehealth to telework, you know, how that is going to um, transform how we live our lives every day. And it could be actually an opportunity for you know, um, the disability population to be more engaged in the workforce. Yeah, yeah, hopefully there's also significant issues around a digital divide, especially for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who are in services, which, you know, I think to be truly effective that we need to address as well in this process. But yeah, no, the technology has been a huge, huge um, lifesaver. And I mean, and when we talk about mental health, it's been, you know, the evidence is coming out that, you know, therapy, telehealth therapy, things like that for mental health, but also just primary care is just as effective, if not more effective, right, mm -hmm. than in person, which is interesting. So as, we, as we've all kind of gone through this, this uh, experience with the pandemic, everybody has struggled with mental health things. It's, and it's become kind of first and foremost in our news and it's kind of been raised, elevated. It was always there, but it's kind of been elevated to a national epidemic. Um, and so one of the questions that we like to ask participants on the podcast here are, what strategies have you found to be effective in supporting your own mental health through mm -hmm. this pandemic? That's a great question. Um, in the beginning, ironically, um, I actually kind of did quite well. Um, I know a lot of my um, friends were struggling with the pandemic, but I actually came across a um, newspaper article and they said, you know, the difference between people who are intrinsically motivated and extrinsically motivated. And I'm one of those that's more the intrinsic scale of things. And I actually found myself in the beginning to be like very creative. Um, at the time I was at DOL and I was pushing out like really cool, innovative stuff for e-learning that support our American job centers. And, um, and so, that, that was interesting, but I saw that some of my friends um, struggle and I don't know if it's maybe because of a disability being more resilient, but I actually used a lot of that time to be very creative in the beginning and really use that time um, to learn. But you know, at the same time, you can overwork and you need that um, work-life um, balance. And so one of the things that I'm very um, firm in doing is um, one hour walks and it's so much easier to do now um, but it is a way for me to kind of clear my head. And I do a lot of um, good thinking uh, during those walks. And of course, strength training, um, I don't enjoy that, but um, the next day is, I feel better um, but, and it helped me um, stay focused. So I, you know, a little bit of cardio and um, weight training is something that um, you know, helped me with my um, mental health. So exercise, I guess, bottom line, helped me get through those days when I feel zoomed out. Um, yeah. in this um, world. But yeah, so that's some of the strategies that I've um, adopted. Yeah, it's amazing. 
as we've done these interviews and as we've talked to more and more people through the pandemic, more and more people have recognized that connection between mind and body, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. healthy body equals healthy mind and vice versa. And the more we move our body, the healthier we feel and the, you know, it increases self-esteem and lots of other things. So no, that's, that's great. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that's been working for you. So um, how can people be more effective advocates? One of the things that we do is, um, and especially within the USED system and the DD councils is train people to advocate for, mm -hmm. you know, more effective community services or mental health supports or whatever the case may be. In your experience, um, how can people be more effective advocates for community living supports or mental health programs? Well, again, I'm, I'm going to go back to the person-centered planning, you know, always knowing the unique needs of the individual, because I feel, um, you know, that is just, you know, the foundation of um, knowing and understanding that. But I think to be a very effective advocate, like we need to have data. And I know that that's a challenge we have right now. There's a dearth of data, um, but that is something that we really need to collect in order to advocate. Um, and so it, it's, you know, we need that baseline for um, continued research. So that is, you know, something that, um, you know, we really need to get more of in order to be more effective um, advocates. But I know in the meantime, um, there are kind of um, emerging promising practices happening and um, evidence-based models. And so wherever we can, you know, highlight that, put a spotlight on them to replicate, I think um, is one way that we can um, advocate. You know, one of the things that I do know over the years is, um, you know, states are not always hungry for the what, but for the how. They want to know the recipe. And I know a lot of times states are very different because the structure, as we talked about before, the stovepipes are there. But I do feel we can show that recipe on the how. That is a really good way to effectively um, advocate. Yeah, that. That, um, yeah, that reliance on data and really ensuring that we, we have the evidence to support the decisions that are being made, I feel is so important. So what one big idea would you like people to take from our conversation today? I think the leading key takeaway is always think about the customer, the individual, and how can we have a seamless support system within a fragmented system? You know, it's something that we've navigated through in the labor force. And I feel it's something that we can similarly do in this realm. Um, we can't focus on the system, but we got to focus on the individual. And, you know, we're starting to see changes happening in DC again with the first responders. Um, you know, we're seeing some innovative work with incarcerated youth returning to the workforce. And we're also seeing some, you know, really unique training that's happening with the direct service professional. So, and I think at the end of the day, if we find that this is a good investment upfront, you know, that is going to help us in the long term in terms of you know, minimizing expense down the road for you know, any institutional stays, hospital stays, or emergency visits. So really, um, you know, really that team approach upfront, wherever we can, because one cannot be the expert in everything in this complex realm. And I feel like when we can um, work together um, to focus on the customer, I think we can um, move the needle. That is, that, those are, yeah, that is a, really important idea that I don't think we can overemphasize enough that, yeah, that focus on the individual. A lot of times that focus on the person, right, has been 
the primary motivation at the local level, but we haven't always seen it trickle up. And so I appreciate that that is really something that you bring to your position there and look forward to, yeah, more, uh, more guidance and direction on how we remain person-centered in all that we do. Um, so how can people learn more about you and about your work at ACL? Well, at ACL, we have a very active social media account. So Twitter is the buzz. So please um, you know, sign up for the ACL Twitter account so you can get updates for all the great things that are happening. Um, another area that I feel very passionate about is our Disability Employment Technical Assistance Center. Um, we have a contract with the Lewin and Tash Group. And basically, um, you know, we have tools and resources available. And so um, that address is aoddisabilityemploymentta.center.com, aoddisabilityemploymentta.center.com. And basically on that website, what you'll find is a state map that includes employment data for all um, states and territories. And it includes a clearinghouse of resources related to um, employment system change efforts. And I feel employment issues, one of those critical area to, um, you know, um, add value to um, um, life. Um, it, it gives like everyone purpose when we can um, work and do something. And finally, also on this site, we have the National Community of Practice. And so what you can do is you can sign up to, to join our National Community of Practice. I encourage you to do so because it allows you to stay engaged in with our webinars, blog posts, and um, other, you know, podcasts. So, um, they're the two areas that I like to highlight um, and hope that you can um, follow. Great. Well, we appreciate your time today, David. This has been a great interview and a great opportunity to meet you and learn a little bit more about, yeah, your priorities and what you bring to ACL. Thank you so much for your time. Great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mental Health Crossroads podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. As always, links mentioned in this episode are in the show notes. Additionally, you can visit our website at mhddcenter.org or follow us on social media at mhddcenter for more resources. Thanks so much.